Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts here to start off with. You can tell how big a person is by what it takes to discourage him or her. We don't change the message, the message changes us. The will of God will never take you to where the grace of God will not protect you. And the one I like that we're going to get into our message, it says the task ahead of us is never as great as the power behind us. So with that thought, let's go on to study the first book of Esther. It's really kind of an interesting book. It says, um, I started doing some research here and I started thinking about all the different things that have to do with Esther and I, and I started thinking about luck and I said, how often do you hear, I wish you good luck or boy is that a coincidence. Those are two of, of many such statements that we hear a lot of today. However, the book of Esther proves to us that there is no such thing as luck, no chance, no coincidence, and no fate. As Christians, we know that there is a sovereign God who is always present and he controls all things. The book of Esther was written to convey just that. It is a unique in that it conveys, conveys the sovereignty of God without even mentioning his name, not even once. It's never mentioned in the New Testament. J. Sidlow Baxter writes that Esther is a crisis book. It is a drama, not a fiction, but of actual facts. It is set on the stage of history and it gathers around actual people. This is a diaspora book, books like Daniel, Ezra, Jeremiah, that means that the, this is a story about the Jews who were scattered away from home. They were not in Israel. Here, however, the Jews did not have that longing to, reach, to go back to Jerusalem. King Cyrus stated that the Jews were free to return home. The Jews in the book of Esther, they just assimilated right into the Persian culture. But even when they tried to keep God at a distance, he was always present. He is working behind the scenes, same as it is today. We may not always sense his presence, but he is there. And you know what? That gives us hope. Romans 15.4 For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We are, not, we are able to see the providence of God. You know, nothing happens by chance. The word providence is broken up into two words. It's pro, meaning before, and video, meaning to see. So we get the idea of foresight. God being able to see all things outside of time. He created time for us. He even uses the times of life that seem so mundane to us. As Christians, we need to have the capacity to enjoy God even when he feels absent. Ephesians 1.11 In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And 
uh, Philippians 2.13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Seek him. Seek his will. And you know what? He'll find you. As I mentioned before, the book is unique. It's, only, it's one of only two books that are named after a woman. In Ruth, there's a pagan who marries a Jew. And in Esther, we have just the opposite. We have a Jew who marries a pagan. You know, God accomplishes his plan by doing everything himself, as seen in Abrahamic, as the Abrahamic covenant, and in miracles such as Moses at the Red Sea. In Esther, God stays behind the scenes. He uses circumstances of everyday life to keep his promises to his covenant people. He isn't as blatant as the miracles of the Dead Sea. Uh, Psalm 12:14. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God will never abandon Israel, even if they turn their backs on him. He has not replaced them with the church, although some people in this day and age think that's correct. That's replacement theology, and that's not what he's done. He's still preserving Israel as a nation. A great example of this would be Hitler and the Holocaust. God's church will be raptured, and he will again focus on Israel as a nation. And at that time, she will return home to him. As we study the book of Esther, we see two main Jewish characters. First, let's look at Esther. Esther was taken in by Mordecai when she lost her immediate family. She was cared for, just like his daughter. She was raised with a Jewish heritage. But unlike Daniel, who also, by the way, was a Babylonian captive, she was a non-practicing, non-righteous Jew. She was not forced to compete for the title of queen in verse 8, and she was definitely not forced to eat pagan food, as we see in verse 9. She hid her Jewish heritage for five years. So during that time, she must have acted like a Persian, probably worshipped with them. She definitely had premarital sex, as was written. And finally, she married a pagan king. She was used by God, not a godly woman. Now, let's look at Mordecai. First, he orders Esther to hide her identity, fearful of exposing his own Jewish identity. Mordecai walks like a Persian and requires the same of Esther. Later, we see that he refused to bow to the king. Now, don't be mistaken. It was quite a well-known custom to bow to kings at that time. It was a sign of respect, not of worship. That's seen in 2 Samuel 14.4. Persian kings never claimed to be gods. Here we see Mordecai stubborn, rebellious, and prideful. He never speaks of God, never speaks of Jerusalem, temple laws, covenants, sacrifices, or never once mentions prayer. Once again, he's courageous, but not godly. Now, let's consider the Jewish people as a whole. They were, for all purposes, Persians at the time. They should have been home in Israel. 
This, this book takes place in a period of time between Ezra 6 and 7, and the Jews were allowed to return to Israel at this time. More convicting is Jeremiah 29, 10-14. It says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, and to give you future and hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Here they were commanded to return to Israel after 70 years of captivity. They chose not. Isaiah 48:20. Go forth from Babylon, free, uh, flee from the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Now, the Jews wanted to stay in Persia. They wanted to stay there for all of it, had, all that Persia had, as opposed to returning to all the destruction-laden Israel that laid before them. They remind me of the whining, whining, whining Israelites in the desert, longing for the foods of Egypt, kind of forgetting the captivity portion, just kind of remembering the good stuff. We do that too. These are definitely, these Persian people, they're definitely not the weeping people in captivity as seen in the great Psalm 137. Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jewish people should have been longing to go back to Israel. They did not want to identify themselves with God's plan for Israel, so God refused to attach his name to those who felt this way. Make no mistake, God will protect them, even if his name's not attached to them. Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then this offspring of Israel will, uh, also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the fountains of the earth searched out below, then I will ca also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Leviticus 26:44. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of the enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant for them. For I am the Lord their God. Now we see on the overhead here, it says God is faithful. He's always faithful, even when they choose not to be faithful. Okay? The faithfulness of God to his covenant people. We see three things that we need to understand. The faithfulness of God to his covenant people. So we have faith in his promises to us. If he's faithful to them, and he has been, he'll be faithful to you. 
The second is, God is still working behind the scenes in Israel today. Now, they may be uh, zealous for the land of Israel. They may, you know, be out and fighting other people for their land. But they're not saved right now. But he is still faithful to his covenant to that nation. Third, he is, according to my pastor, a great way of stating this, the hand of God working in the glove of history. Now, now that we have some background, let's go to our text. It's quite a long introduction, but I wanted you to understand what we're really studying here. We see Esther verses 1 and 2. We see that king, and it's Ahasuerus, had a large banquet. And Ahasuerus was a title. It was not a name for the king of the largest empire in all of history. It stretched from India to Ethiopia. Now, I have a map for you. Let's get acquainted with this king. His Persian name was Gahashrashan. In Hebrew, it becomes Ahashverosh. And in Greek, it was uh, Xerxes. Same guy, different names. Ahasuerus was a cruel man, and he was a man of extremes. He was reckless, he was unpredictable, and he definitely was proud. His, fa his father was Darius I, and his grandfather was Cyrus the Great. He ruled the Persian Empire from 486 to 465. Even though the empire was divided up into many provinces, the king ruled with absolute control. You can see how big the, province, how big the empire was. It went all the way from just on the outside of Greece, all the way through the Mediterranean area, down toward uh, Ethiopia, and all the way across to what we look for as uh, China or uh, Nepal. You know, we can see three evidences of this in the first chapter of absolute, his absolute control. We can see his boastfulness his, in verses 1 to 9, his drunkenness in verses 10 to 12, and his vindictiveness in verses 13 to 22. Ahasuerus decided to have a banquet, and he decided to have it in the capital city of Susa, which happened to be the king's winter palace. It was very common for eastern rulers to host lavish banquets. In this case, the first banquet was to last 180 days. Sounds rather over the top, but you consider the fact that he's having leaders from this empire coming to this battle. I mean, how long would it take you to get from Greece to over here during that period of time. You had the winds, and as we know with Paul, all the you know things with the sea and across the land. They had a lot of mountains there they had to cross. So 180 days really wasn't that over the top. It was sort of like a smorgasbord type thing. So 
Well, if you consider that he was considering the invasion of Greece, and you see how close Greece is to his, his uh, empire here, he needed to consult with all his councils and his officers. And it was not wise to have them all away from their duties all at the same time. So you can, they would come at different times and then consult with them all together at the end. You can see how big it was and you don't want to pull all these people away from that huge empire. And this is seen in verses 3 through 6. The historian Herodotus tells us Xerxes wanted to reduce the entire earth into one empire. The king's uncle opposed the plan, so this banquet was to convince the leaders of his absolute control, wealth, and power over what anybody else would say. Like the proud man he was, he knew how to reach the pride in his audience. As a side note, he failed miserably. As Proverbs 16.18 states, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. We, too, need to remember that all authority comes from God. He alone is in control. This fall was predicted in Daniel's vision. Daniel 11.2 And now I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then the fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. Aha, we got our man here. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will rouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, in Esther, the verses 6 to 8 give us uh, the information we need to, to imagine the lavish surroundings of this party. I mean, we're talking the mood or the flavor of this party. There were hangings of fine white and violet, and violet linen held by cords of fine purple. These were linens were on silver rings and marble columns and the couches were of gold and silver and they sat on mosaic pavements of bahat, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. They had drinks that were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. Now, if God provides all this on earth for a proudful king, can you imagine the heavenly banquet that there is in store for his bride of the church after the rapture? I mean, we're talking banquet here. We are told in verse 9 of Ruth that Vashti, the queen, was having a banquet herself. She was having one for the arist aristocratic ladies. And as we return to the conclusion of the seven-day banquet where he got everybody together, uh, we find uh, a Ahasuerosh in high spirits from wine. Verses 10 and 11 tells us that the king commanded his seven eunuchs to bring his queen Vashti to the banquet. Now, I'm not going to name all those. And he is just to display her beauty. Verse 12 gives us her response. Ah, uh, no. Her response was a triple offense. It was, one, a woman challenging the authority of a man. That was bad enough. Then you add two, a wife disobeying the orders of her husband in the in a Persian Empire. And you add a third, third thing, which just threw it all out of proportion. This was a subject defying the command of a king. We are not told why Vashti refused the command. Some believe that Vashti refused because this she would be seen without a veil, which was a custom, and she was having a party with all these aristocratic ladies who would have been abhorred by the fact she was without a veil. 
Some think she, uh, she refused to appear into a room of drunken men. Good, good possibility there. Or possibly the, the uh, historians tell us that she might have been pregnant with her son at the time and she wasn't going to be parading around like that. But her reason isn't the issue here. The issue is that she did refuse and that brought on the wrath of a drunken king. Okay, so now you have an angry drunken king who called upon his advisors, who, by the way, may or may not also have been drunk since they were all there, in verses 13 to 15. Have you noticed that the king always consulted advisors? This would have been wise, considering he was drunk, but these advisors were worldly. You know, they had their own agendas. You know, we have an advisor in our time of need that we need to call upon when we're in need of advice. Not like the counsel of this earthly king, but God himself. He's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords. He makes himself available on the pages of his word. We need to seek his advice often. Now, uh, King Ahasuerus, his pride got the best of him. Since his queen Vashti had embarrassed him in front of all of his leaders, now he had to do something to save both his ego and his reputation. Even though Vashti is consi was considered by many to be right in her choice, anger blinded his eyes. Pride feeds anger, and as it grows, anger reinforces pride. Sort of like a vicious circle thing. In verses 13 to 15, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was custom of the king to speak before all who knew law and justice, and were close to him, who had access to the king's presence and sat at, in the first place in the kingdom. Now these were some pretty very powerful men who sat in his presence. And they were, they, uh, who again are worldly men, and they had all of their own little agendas. This is seen by the words, understood the times. Now, what did this quote, what did these quote, learned men do? Well, they exaggerated the importance of the bent. They just blew it totally out of proportion. In verses 16 to 18, they told the king that since Vashti had done this, all those in attendance were going to run home and tell everyone that she was disobedient to her husband, and the consequences would be disastrous. Women would no longer respect their husbands, and a general rebellion would be on the horizon. Now these seven wise men advised the king to dispose Vashti and to replace her with someone else. They promised that such an act would put fear into the hearts of all the women of the empire and thus they would respect their husbands even more. Now, you really got to think about this. Are the hearts of man changed by king's decrees? I mean, when is the last time you heard that happening? And how could this possibly make the women of the empire love their husbands more? How could supposedly wise men come to a conclusion that was so outlandish. Well, they were encouraging every husband to rule as the king did by fear and possible retribution. You know, it seemed like they were kissing up to the king a little there, kind of telling him what he wanted to hear. They'll all do what you say because they're all going to act like you. 
How contrary to what Paul says to husbands in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Motivated by anger and revenge and definitely fueled by pride, the king agreed to their advice. He sent out his couriers throughout the empire to declare the royal edict that was, first, unnecessary, second, unenforceable, and third, unchangeable. This edict, verse 19, if it pleases the king, let the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. Verse 20. When the king's edict, uh, when he, which he will make, is heard throughout all of his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. So he sent letters to the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language that every man should be master in his own home and that one and the one who speaks the language of his own people. He sent out this e uh, edict by way of courier to all his provinces, which you can see here a lot. Persia had a great um, and amazing communication system, a Persian Pony Express, so to speak. His, this edict was delivered to each province in the language of that province, and it was necessary because it was due to the vastness of the empire, there, the number of languages would be phenomenal. He wanted to make sure that all understood, no matter what language it was, that all understood the consequences of defiance. Having made and sent this edict, he did not immediately depose Vashti. Instead, he went out to fight in Greece. And possibly, now, after all this had happened, regain his prideful stature. As God had already determined, he suffered a humiliating defeat. No regaining of prideful stature here. So, to soothe that pride on his return to Susa, he sought to satisfy his sensual appetite. He sought it by seeking out a replacement for Vashti. Remember, God is in control. By using pagans like Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Siri, uh, Cyrus, and Ahasuerus to put a new queen on the throne, it would advance his plans for Israel. Providence. God working behind the scenes, directing what happens in history. God can, but does not usually use miracles. He does use the ordinary course of events. This was predicted in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the king of Medo and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is its first king. Now, ultimately, Greece does conquer Medo-Persia. Here in the book of Esther, we see that the beginnings of God's hands at work. There is so much more to the story of God's hands at work because he is in control over all things. Do you see him in control of things in your home? 
your school, your work. Nothing occurs by accident. God can use the ungodly in your life to accomplish his godly plan for your life. God will allow you to use your will to make decisions. What kind of counsel will you seek? What kind of counsel will you use to make those decisions? You know, he's always there to help you. Seek him out. Use his word as your guide. I'd like to close in prayer in reading a prayer about God's sovereign hand from the Valley of Vision. God of all sovereignty, thy greatness is unsearchable, thy name most excellent, thy glory above the heavens. Ten thousand minister to thee, ten thousand times ten thousand stand before thee. In thy awful presence we are less than nothing. We do not approach thee because we deserve thy notice, for we are sinners. Our necessities compel us, our promises encourage us. Thy promises encourage us. Our broken hearts incite us. The mediator draws us. Thy acceptance of other moves us. Look thou upon us and be merciful to us. Convince us of the penalty and the pollution of sin. Give us faith to believe and believing to have life in Jesus. May we enter into his sufferings. Let us see thy hand in the instruments of our grief, rejoicing that they are from thy overruling providence. Let not our weeping hinder our sowing nor sorrow duty. While living in a world of change, let us seek the abiding city. Be with us in our journey's end, that we may glorify thee in the death as in life. Bless thee for preservations, supplies, mercies, and to thee, keeper of souls, we commit all we are and have. May no evil befall us, no sickness come nigh us, no horror disturb us. May our conscience be clear, our hearts pure, our sleep sweet. And with the innumerable company who neither slumber nor rest, we join in an ascribing blessing, honor, glory, and power to the Lamb upon the throne forever and ever. Amen.